Hello, I'm your host, Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast dedicated to recovering authentic Christianity and living it out today. Today, we're in part four of our Why Christianity class, and Jerry Weirwell is going to address the criticism of skeptics that Christian belief is arrogant, unjustified, irrational. Then he's going to define and show the flaws with the view known as scientism. This episode is a bit more technical than a number of our others, as evidenced by the fact that Jerry begins by talking about Alvin Plantinga. If you're a Plantinga fan, you might enjoy this, uh, but if not, you're about to get a crash course in some of the epistemological concerns of Christian apologetics. And what is epistemological? That's the whole field of knowledge, and how do you know what you know, and is belief in God rational? And I'll let him explain the rest of that to you in this episode. Here now is episode 391, Why Christianity, Part 4, Believing in God is Not Stupid, with Jerry Weirwell. The second part is going to be about uh, dealing with some of the things in our culture and attitudes toward Christianity. Um, Titling this segment, Believing in God is Not Stupid. This all kind of started for me years ago in grad school, reading a Christian philosopher by the name of Alvin Plantinga. He wrote this book called Warranted Christian Belief, and I started reading this book, and well, let me just tell you, it's written at a level that was far above mine and it's super technical and academic. Um, so it was, it was difficult, and it's long, and it's analytic. I have a friend who's an analytic philosopher, and they speak a whole different language. I mean, philosophers basically make up a whole set of vocabulary to try to explain what they're talking about. So I basically had to find a, a different way to access this material. And he actually wrote a, a more condensed version called Knowledge and Christian Belief. And it's, it's a smaller book, more digestible. I want to talk about some of what he presents in there in a defense of the rationality of the Christian faith. Basically, Alvin Plantinga's whole career in Christian philosophy is based on this premise to tell people that to be a Christian is not irrational. Now, the problem that we face in our culture, uh, and which the second part of my talk will deal with, which is called scientism, It's an ideology that is very prevalent in our culture and especially over in Europe. It's the idea uh, that's going to be combating a supernatural worldview or a worldview in which there is something that exists beyond the physical world. Now, we can basically categorize the way to look at the world into three major sections. One being that there is only the physical world. The next one being there is a physical world and there's a spiritual world. Or the second one, or the third one being that they're actually one and the same. The physical world is the spiritual world, just in a sort of a pantheistic worldview where everything is God. So those are the three categories. And to, for the rationality of the Christian faith, it's under attack specifically by the worldview where there is nothing except for what exists in nature, the, the naturalistic worldview. So in Alvin Plantinga, he talks uh, about three different charges against the Christian faith. Uh, One, 
being that it is arrogant, two being that it is unjustified, and three that it is irrational or unwarranted. The first one, the charge that Christian belief, the Christian belief is, is arrogant. Wilfred Cantwell here, he's a uh, professor of comparative religions, and he says that except at the cost of insensitivity or delinquency, it is morally not possible actually to go out into the world and say to devout, intelligent fellow human beings, we believe that we know God and we are right. You believe that you know God and you are totally wrong. The charge that the Christian faith or Christian belief is arrogant is basically the idea of having something that is objectively true. And what the charge is, is that Christians are arrogant because they believe that they have, that they know what is true, that they know what is real, that the Christian God is the right God. And so Alvin Plantinga goes to explain that to say that the Christian belief is arrogant is no different than to say that any other claim on truth is arrogant or anything that anybody ever asserts to be true is just as arrogant. Basically, you can't actually even assert something to be real without being called arrogant. And so he basically just points out that people who want to point the finger at Christians as though they have a superiority complex or they have an elitist mindset, he's saying, well, that's no different than anybody else in the world. That's no different than any other religion in the world. Even atheism itself lays claim to truth, they think, that is just as arrogant. So he basically points out that it is a personal bias against Christianity for anyone to lay a charge that Christian faith is arrogant. So I think that's an easily dismantable charge against the Christian faith. Now, the idea of what does it mean for a belief to be justified? Let's do a couple definitions here so we know what we're talking about. For a belief to be justified, it is considered to be justified if after careful reflection and investigation of a matter, including objections and counter arguments, it is still found to be strongly compelling. Now, let's talk about justified belief. There's a famous passage uh, written by a philosopher named John Locke. Uh, he lived back in the 17th century, and he's well known for his epistemological views on the idea that people are born innately without any real knowledge or understanding. We're, we have this tabula rasa, a blank slate, and we learn everything by experience. And therefore, he's known as the father of empiricism, which basically is that you, everything uh, is verified by empirical or observation. And he says this here. It's a, kind of a long quote, but bear with me. Faith, that is belief, essentially an opinion, is nothing but a firm assent of the mind, which, if it be regulated, as is our duty, cannot be afforded to anything but upon good reason, and so cannot be the opposite to it. He that believes without having any reason for believing may be in love with his own fancies, but neither seeks truth as he ought, nor pays the obedience due to his maker, who would have him use those discerning faculties he has given him to keep him out of mistake and error. He that does not this to the best of his power, however he sometimes lights on truth, is in the right but by chance, and I know not whether the likeliness of the accident will excuse the irregularity of his proceeding. This at least is certain that he must be accountable for whatever mistakes he runs into, 
whereas he that makes use of the light and faculties God has given him and seeks sincerely to discover truth by those helps and abilities he has may have the satisfaction in doing his duty as a rational creature, that though he should miss truth, he will not miss the reward of it. For he governs his assent right and places it as he should, who in any case or matter whatsoever believes or disbelieves according as reason directs him. He that doth otherwise transgresses against his own light and misuses those faculties which are given him to no other end but to search and follow the clear evidence and greater probability. The charge against the Christian faith that it is unjustified is that there's no grounds for it, is what they say. And what John Locke here is trying to prove is that for something to be reasonable or rational, it has to be searched out by the faculties of the mind. So, for example, an unjustified belief would be believing in the tooth fairy, for example. That there's this idea that you're believing in, but yet there's no reason or there's no rationale that has been searched out, no evidence, no propositional standard by which you're actually drawing the conclusion. And so the charge against the Christian faith that there really is no reason to believe in it is to dismiss the evidence that there's actually good reasons. There are reasons that through our cognitive mind and the faculties that God has given us, and by exercising those as intended by God, we can come to reasonable deductions. However, the opposite views uh, to the Christian faith, either other religious views or naturalistic views, are in contention with that because they already have a presupposition that the basis for the reasons are actually unfounded in their mind because their worldview excludes that possibility. It's a a priori or a beforehand presupposition. I mean, they have a presupposition that they start with that precludes them from actually seeing the reasonableness of the Christian faith. And so what Alvin Plantinga does is he goes through to show that to be justified is to actually just to exercise the cognitive faculties in the way that they were designed to. And he's saying to accuse a Christian of believing in something as being unjustified is basically to tell him that you're not actually in the right mind. You are not, your mind is not actually working properly. And so he goes through to show that, well, to say to somebody that they've evaluated the evidence and after evaluating the evidence has actually found it to still be compelling to tell that person that they're unjustified is no different than to tell somebody who has gone to the store and has compared the prices at, at the store in their shopping to say that, that they don't even know what they're buying now. And so he's, he basically goes through to show that these type of claims are not actually based upon substantial reasons in the arguments. They're based upon a preferential bias. So for somebody to say that the Christian belief is unjustified is more or less to accuse the Christian of being nonsensical in their thinking, in which case they would be in error because, uh, as Sean presented, that there have been lots of scientists and scholars and well-intentioned people who have thought through carefully the Christian faith and have come to realize that it actually has good substantiation. Let me talk about the rational. A belief is rational if it is produced by cognitive faculties that are functioning properly and successfully aimed at discovering what is true. Now, there's also a charge that the Christian belief is irrational, and this comes at a slightly different angle. We're gonna cover two people here. 
two people you probably know. One is Sigmund Freud, who says these, referring to religious beliefs, which are given out as teachings are not precipitants of experience or end results of thinking. They are illusions, fulfillments of the oldest, strongest, and most urgent wishes of mankind. The secret of their strength lies in the strength of those wishes. As we already know, the terrifying impressions of helplessness in childhood aroused the need for protection. For protection through love, which was provided by the father, and the recognition that this helplessness lasts throughout life, made it necessary to cling to the existence of a father, but this time a more powerful one. Thus, the benevolent rule of a divine providence allays our fears of the dangers of life. The establishment of a moral world order ensures the fulfillment of the demands of justice, which have so often remained unfulfilled in human civilization, and the prolongation of earthly existence in a future life provides the local and temporal framework in which these wish fulfillments shall take place. Now, what is he saying? He's basically saying, People have invented the idea of God in order to make themselves feel better for the sake of coping with the world. The world is such a messed up place, according to Freud, that people have invented the idea of a father figure up in the sky in order to get themselves to deal with the helplessness of the world and the injustice that they see. So the charge he's saying is basically the Christian belief is something that is a fictitious idea in order to cope with life, and therefore it's irrational. Well, the second person who also had irrational thinking about the Christian belief is a guy named Karl Marx. And he said, the self-feeling of the man who has either not yet found himself or else having found himself has lost himself once more. But man is no abstract being squatting outside the world. Man is the world of man, the state society. This state, this society, produce religion, a perverted world consciousness, because they are a perverted world. Religious distress is at the same time the expression of real distress and the protest against real distress. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, just as it is the spirit of a spiritless situation. It is the opium of the people. So Marx's point of view and why he thinks that the Christian belief is irrational is because the world needs religion in order to deal with society. Society, in the way that it is, uh, puts distress on people, and the way that social frameworks cause people to not know how to live properly, saying people create religion in order to deal with society. Society produces religion because of the constraints. And if any of you know, Karl Marx had a lot of very strong political views. And his political views bled over into his religious views, uh, of which he saw the Christian belief as an irrational product of a dysfunctional society. Well, Alvin Plantinga basically goes through to, to explain the way irrationality charges work is they try to find an alternate explanation for how things have come about. Rather than starting from the basis on what is the evidential foundation for concluding a certain belief. And so he basically says ir the irrational claim is a circular argument that, ha that doesn't even start from any actual premise. It is a self-contained argument that the Christian belief is not itself 
a belief. It is actually a mechanism of which to believe something so that there is not an emptiness or a void in life of which the pain is too difficult or too much to bear. Lastly, what does it mean for a belief to be warranted? A belief is warranted if it is rational and derived from an appropriate framework of knowledge based on reasons with proper epistemological merit. Okay, let's talk about this word real quick. Epistemology is just a fancy word that refers to the study of knowledge. It basically refers to how do we know what we know, what are the sources of knowledge, and when we say that we know something, what does it mean to say that you know something? Now, when it comes to warrant, this is basically where the entire argument is. The battle over the Christian faith between the atheists and the theists comes down to warrant. Is there warrant behind the Christian worldview, the Christian belief? Is there warrant for believing in God? And the major antagonist to this in our day is something called scientism. Scientism is a way of looking at the world through the lens of science. It's actually an ideology that's based in an anti-religious premise, a, a presupposition that religion is bad. And without proof that, that human rationality and empirical methods based on science can be the sole determining factor for what is real. To make it a little bit simpler, scientism is the belief that science alone has the intellectual authority to give us knowledge of reality. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever kind of come across this in the mainstream academia uh, with biological uh, sciences and, and other things. Uh, evolutionary theory basically is the dominant form of understanding for the naturalistic world that we live in. And this idea of scientism is saying basically we're going to exclude all other forms of understanding and investigation except the scientific method. So when we talk about scientific method, this is basically a naturalistic methodology. It's basically saying what you see, taste, touch, smell, hear, and feel, all the five senses, that that is the way that we can establish what is real. There's nothing outside of that framework. It is a closed box. Jürgen Habermas, he's a German philosopher, and uh, he said positivism stands or falls with the principle of scientism. That is that the meaning of knowledge is defined by what the sciences do and can thus be adequately explicated through the methodological analysis of scientific procedures. So the idea of being able to, for humans, the positive view that humans can assess and understand the world around them is based upon scientism, which is based upon the idea that the only adequate way to know things is through the scientific method. And that is to know things only by empirical observation, having an objective, visible, observable reason to conclude something. Now, this is different from science. This is the big uh, misunderstanding a lot of times, is that people look at understanding science and they think scientism. And they, that's why uh, there's this whole thing about that science and religion are like antithetical to each other, as though they are in polar opposite camps. But this is not true. Science is no more for or against religion. 
It, it is just a way of looking at something to understand uh, an answer, to try and perceive what's going on. Uh, science is just the investigation and study of the structure and behavior of the physical world through observation and experimentation. It's, it's nothing more than just trying to do experimenting when you're cooking to find out if you add this, what happens after that? If you mix these two ingredients together, what flavor does it produce? It's just a cause and effect system to try to get at an understanding of the world. Scientism is actually a philosophy, an ideology, a way of thinking, a framework to be able to believe what's real and what's not real. Now, there was a famous atheist, and uh, his name is Bertrand Russell, a very abrasive man. And he said that man is the product of causes which had no prevision in the end they were achieving. That his origin, his growth, his hopes, his fears, his loves and beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocation of atoms. That all the labors of the ages are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. And his famous quote is basically, if he was asked, Bertrand Russell, why don't you believe in God? He would say, not enough evidence, God, not enough evidence. He basically was so certain that mankind can, in their own thinking, understand the world so certainly that any other idea of a supernatural or theistic being, an, all, a, an ultimate being outside of the physical world, he, he couldn't see any possibility of that, that the evidence was not persuasive enough for him. Here's another good quote about the way he looked at science, and he actually is talking about scientism here. He says, science can teach us, and I think our hearts can teach us, no longer to look around for imaginary supporters, no longer to invent allies in the sky, but rather to look to our own efforts here below to make the world a fit place to live. For Bertrand Russell, there was no need for God. And that's what scientism posits. There's no need for God. If you look at the world through the natural lens of science, if you look at the world through what only you can see, if you look at the world as you are the basis and you are the standard for everything, you'll, you won't have a need for God. Now, with scientism, the problem comes is that you can't actually explain everything in the world through science. And I want to show you guys here that there are five major things that science can't explain, but theism can, specifically Christian theism. The first thing is the origin of the universe. And Sean touched on this a little bit in his presentation. The idea of the, like, for example, the Kalam cosmological argument that Science even says that every cause has an effect, and everything that is caused has a cause that caused it. There's no uncaused causes. There's always a first cause. And even science has shown that there is a beginning to the universe. For example, thermodynamics. Thermodynamics 
state says that if you have a disordered system, it will come to equilibrium at some point. It will work itself into equilibrium. Well, if you look at our current system that we're in, uh, our solar system is not in an equilibrium. We are in a system where the universe is slowly expanding. And also, our sun, having our, the star in our solar system, having a finite amount of mass of which to burn, it has not yet come to an equilibrium. In the worst case for the atheists, the end of the universe is basically what's called the heat death of the universe. Basically, the sun burns out and the entire... Uh, Milky Way galaxy that we're a part of basically becomes like a cold, frozen wasteland. And, and that's the end of life as we know it forever. The second aspect with the expansion of the galaxy is that the origin of the universe would be that if the universe did not have an origin, then there wouldn't be movement within the universe. Based on movement, meaning that there has to have been a point of which the movement began. Because otherwise, we'd be infinitely far away from each other if the universe was always in existence. And the scientific theory of that is what's called a, a singularity. And this is the scientific explanation for the Big Bang, that the entire universe was at one time one singularity, where if you collapse all the molecules in the universe down on top of each other, it would fit inside of a very small space. And that singularity then basically blew apart into an expansion of what currently exists. The problem with this is that the, what they call the quantum perturbations, the, the things that they think started the expansion of the singularity, that there's no explanation for how they started. It's basically a presupposition on that, well, if everything was at one time together and then it expanded, something had to cause that, but it couldn't be an external cause. So we have to postulate some sort of quantum perturbation, some sort of fluctuation that ended up disturbing the system so that it expanded. The origin of the universe can be much better explained through a theistic framework that there actually is a personal cause outside the universe, that there is an ultimate creator who brought everything into existence. There's no need to invent hypothetical scientific theories. Secondly, the laws of nature. I think Sean did a great job showing the fine-tuning of the universe, that science relies on this consistency of the fundamental laws of nature, but offers no explanation for why the laws exist in the first place. It's a circular argument as well, that the thing that it's trying to prove is a thing upon which it's already premised. It has to basically use what it already presupposes to try to prove itself. Science can't explain the laws. They must simply accept that they are there and then try to explain things that you see around you, the things in the universe, based upon those laws. And there's only two options. Either you just accept the laws at face value with no explanation, or you have to acknowledge that there's a personal cause behind the laws that established them in the, in the first place. And this is the principle of sufficient reason, where for every contingent existent, there is a sufficient explanation for why it exists as opposed to not existing. Meaning, you actually have to have a lot more faith, so to say, in the idea of the natural laws coming about randomly than to believe in a creator that actually established the laws, that gave order to the universe. 
And the, uh, the fine-tuning constants and ratios, of which there's over 35 major constants, scientific constants and ratios, of which if any one of them was actually significantly altered, if they weren't actually balanced the way they were, the universe and life would really not even exist. Uh, I, I like the one, the, uh, the mass-energy ratio that Sean talked about. One part in 10 to the 10th to the 123rd. That is an astronomical number that we can't even fathom. To be able to write a number on each proton and neutron in the universe and then throw every other particle in for good measure and still not be able to actually write out this number, it is so unfathomable that you have to actually be willing to take a leap of blind faith to try to trust in an explanation that has actually really zero probability to it. The third one here, the meaning of life. I think this is actually probably one of the best arguments against naturalism and for theism because in a naturalistic worldview where there is nothing except for time plus chance plus matter, life doesn't actually have any meaning uh, in the sense that there's no ultimate meaning. Uh, there could be what's called intermediate meaning, where everybody's lives and everything kind of contribute to each other in a, in a very limited temporal sense. But after somebody dies, their life actually ceases to have meaning, and their meaning is only lived on in the uh, sequential lives that they've affected. Whereas in a supernaturalistic or Christian worldview, where there is a God, an ultimate creator, God gives meaning to life. And life has meaning in relation to God. Actually, life is composed of worship and fellowship with God. I'd like to at least go to a couple places here. If you would turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says in verse 32, uh, Paul writes here, if the dead are not raised... So you're saying, if, if there is no resurrection, if there is nothing after you die, then he says, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. He's basically saying, live for today, because there's nothing after it. After your life is over, that's all you get. So why not live it up? It's basically hedonism. Get what you can, while you can, as much as you can, and have fun doing it. And then go out with a bang. And that's it, because once you're gone... You spent all the, all, all the time you had, so use it up while you can. But in relation to having meaning coming from God, go to Isaiah 43, please. In verse 21, it says, referring to the Israelites, his chosen people here, he says, the people I formed for myself will declare my praise. And the, the idea of the people he formed for himself with Israel is a type of God's family, his chosen people, of which began with Abraham and ultimately will, will consume the entire earth of, of people of all nations. God formed his people so that they could praise him. God created people so he could have fellowship with them. That was the whole idea in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, that he was with them in the garden and that they were fellowshipping together. They were in communion with one another together. And it wasn't until the disobedience of Adam and Eve that that fellowship, that that relationship was broken. Now, I really like this other passage in Revelation chapter 4. Because this passage kind of points to where everything is going. 
as uh, when John sees the uh, vision in heaven uh, of the throne room, here in verse 11, he sees these 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne, worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, and this is what they say. Oh, our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things, and because of your will, they exist and were created. The reason why everything exists is because God wants us. He wants our worship. He wants us to serve him, to be in relationship with him. He wants ultimately to have us to be with him in a new, newly created heaven and earth, with his son Jesus, and to live in a new city together. The purpose for life is only found when there is God. I remember reading something by William Lane Craig about that there are two necessary things for life to actually have meaning. One is that there actually has to, God has to exist. And number two is that immortality has to be possible. Without either of those, life doesn't actually really have meaning. If there were God but no immortality, well, you would have the same problem that after you die, every, it's all over. Now, if you have immortality but you don't have God, he said it was like if you would think about having, being an astronaut and you were stranded on a, a very distant planet and in your survival pack there were two potions. One was an elixir for everlasting life and one was a toxin, a poison that would kill you. And you find out that the sh your ship is completely dysfunctional and you are stranded. And so you have a choice to choose between one of the two potions. Well, if you choose the death one, and then you accidentally end up taking the immortality one, then now you are stuck forever by yourself on a distant, lonely planet, and you are just as miserable as if, you, as if God never actually really existed. Because you have to have God with immortality to that actually not be a miserable existence. Number four, the origin of human consciousness. The idea that there's really no way to understand how we became thinking creatures by chance. There's a whole argument that can be laid out on the idea of the body-mind connection. That our thought patterns, our psychology, that none of it can be explained through scientific method. That there's no reason for evolution to have produced a conscious thinking mind or for uh, us as humans, morality. And, and lastly, the moral laws and the intrinsic value. See, science can't actually describe morality. It's only descriptive, not prescriptive. And so science can't explain moral laws. It can't explain intrinsic value. No person has intrinsic value in a scientific or naturalistic worldview. As Sean said, you know, it would be that if you had somebody who was weak or diseased or somehow uh, injured, that they would be of lesser value and they should be killed off for the sake of the survival of the fittest. And so scientific worldview can't actually explain why something is good and why something is bad. And it can't explain why people or life actually has intrinsic value. The famous atheist J.L. Mackey even admitted, and I'll close with this quote, 
The emergence of moral properties would constitute a refutation of naturalism and evidence for theism. Moral properties constitute so odd a cluster of properties and relations that they are most unlikely to have arisen in the ordinary course of events without an all-powerful God to create them. That's quite an admission from one of the most renowned atheists of our past century. Uh, that's all I have for skepticism and scientism. Uh, I hope uh, it's been helpful to go over some of the main charges against Christi the Christian faith and the prevalent worldview out there from naturalism that abides by this philosophy called scientism and why it really is not a uh, very good opponent for the Christian faith and how come we don't have to be afraid of the accusations that they bring against our belief system because we have a rational, a justified, and a warranted faith. Well, that brings this episode to a close. What'd you think? You got any questions, criticisms, comments? Come on over to restitutio.org and find episode 391, Why Christianity Part 1, and leave your comment there. Uh, I did have a, a couple of comments come in on the last episode, and one of which was asking the question, why didn't I explain the comeback arguments and, and go into the more second-tier material of how to respond to somebody who puts forward, say, a multiverse theory or some other comeback to one of the fine-tuning arguments. And uh, the, the reason why is simply just because of time. And there are apologetics ministries totally dedicated to delving all the way in-depth to the very bottom. Apologetics is a very fast-paced field at times, not always, but at times, where a Christian will come out with a reason for believing in God, and then an atheist will come out with a counter-argument, and then there's a comeback to the counter-argument, and then there's a counter-argument to that, and so on and so forth, and down the rabbit hole we go. Uh, and every presentation needs to be able to decide, well, how far am I going here? Uh, how much am I going to update this and that in case I'm dealing with this person and that person? And what I was trying to do in the last episode was give a basic overview of the simple arguments for God's existence, the sorts of arguments that you could make in a quick conversation with a neighbor at the mailbox uh, or in a coffee shop or at the workplace. And I do encourage you to delve deeper into the different apologists that are already out there producing whole books and whole YouTube channels dedicated to this one thing. Uh, so that's really where I was coming from there, and I appreciate the uh, pushback on that. But uh, at this time, we are limiting ourselves to somewhat of a cursory overview of these major topics. So thanks for writing in and for listening if you'd like to support this ministry, you can do that at restitutio.org. We'll see you next week, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.